Hello, and welcome to this Speed Listen installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast, featuring everything you need to know about Dorothy M. Johnson, who wrote the short stories that became the films The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, The Hanging Tree, and A Man Called Horse. I'm Paul Bishop. My compadre Richard Prosh and I co-host the full-length episodes of the Six Gun Justice podcast, but I ride solo for these Speed Listen bonus installments. One of the things I like most about the opening of a new year is the anticipation of what author out of the past is awaiting patiently for me to discover them. They wait patiently because their words have already been scattered across the browning pages of vintage paperbacks held tenuously together by drying glue under scuffed and creased covers. Even though they are waiting, calling to me from the great beyond to find them, they still demand a tribute before bestowing their treasures. The odd ritual salute of a head turned awkwardly in an effort to read the titles running down the spines of used paperbacks, be they shelved in musty secondhand bookstores and thrift shops, or hidden in the dark recesses of antique shops behind dilapidated gigas and ancient clocks, or listed on the internet, where regular searches must be made as you fall down the rabbit holes of sudden inspiration in search of that elusive something different to read. Most years I uncover one of these gems a writer who catches my imagination as they steal my breath away with their prose. A good year may yield a bumper crop of two new-to-me authors. A very good year would be the rare occurrence of three new-to-me authors. These are the writers whose books emerge from the many I sample, most of which fail my 10-page rule. If a book doesn't hook me in the first 10 pages, it gets flipped into my always-growing bag of paperbacks to be donated to the Friends of the Library bookstore or traded out anonymously in one of the many little free libraries dotted around my community. During the tumult of 2020, I discovered James Warner Bella, whose short stories of the Indian fighting cavalry life published regularly in the Saturday Evening Post had critics christen him the Kipling of the Cavalry. Warner's stories eventually came to the attention of director John Ford, who based his revered cavalry trilogy, Fort Apache, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, and Rio Grande, on a number of Bella's stories. We talked about Bella at length in episode 21 of the Six-Gun Justice podcast, which looked at books and movies featuring the U.S. cavalry. Bella was also a screenwriter of note, and would often novelize his screenplays for publication in paperback. He did this with The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, a film based on a short story of the same name by Montana writer Dorothy M. Johnson. Like Bella, Johnson's short stories were published in the higher-end magazines of the day. After recording the Cavalry episode, I had to set Bella aside to concentrate on the script for the next episode, and consequently, I didn't look in Johnson any further at the time, except I did pick up a book lot from eBay that happened to have two of her short story collections in it. On New Year's Day, 2021, I was casting around for something fresh and different, and casually picked up the paperback movie tie-in version of A Man Called Horse. This collection of short stories was originally titled Indian Country, which was also the original name of the story, changed to A Man Called Horse for the movies. Within two pages of sparkling prose, I knew I had discovered the first fantastic new-to-me find of 2021. In between reading every story in the collection, I took time to order more of Johnson's work, as well as looking into her background. Turns out, Dorothy Marie Johnson is as fascinating as her stories. Born in Iowa in 1905, Johnson's love of the West and 19th century frontier history and folklore would provide the background for her 17 novels, 50 short stories, and frequent magazine articles. She was considered the dean of women writers of Western fiction, and certainly the most successful Western writer, male or female, to emerge from the hardscrabble wilds of Montana. 
Moving from Iowa to Montana in 1909, Johnson's family finally settled in the town of Whitefish four years later. Graduating high school in 1922, Johnson went on to be a pre-med student at Montana State College before transferring to Montana State University in Missoula and switching her major to English. When she received her degree in 1928, her poetry had already started appearing in professional magazines. With college behind her, Johnson took a job as an editor in New York. She enjoyed the work, but she missed Montana. In 1950, she returned to Whitefish for a visit. While there, she approached the publisher of the small Whitefish Pilot newspaper and accepted a job as editor. Three years later, she relocated to Missoula to teach at the university and work for the Montana Press Association. When she wrote about her childhood in Montana for the Magazine of Western History, she conveyed her love of Montana and her sense of the West's meaning. She described Whitefish as raw, but filled with the prospects for employment created by the Great Northern Railroad. She claimed the workers drawn to Whitefish found it to be the anteroom of paradise, the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. All they had to do to enjoy it was work. She also expressed her observations of the divide between the average hard-working resident of Whitefish and those well-to-do visitors she encountered in nearby Glacier National Park, who she termed rich people and eastern dudes. She saw the difference in those contrasting groups as an east-west divide, and she definitely knew what side she was standing on, stating, We unrich Westerners were suspicious of the whole lot of them. We looked down on them because we thought they looked down on us. But they didn't even see us, which made the situation even more irritating. Later years, when I lived in a big eastern city, I learned not to see strangers. But in the uncrowded west, in my country, it's bad manners. And on the trail, it's proper to acknowledge the existence of other human beings and say hello. Johnson's writing career looked poised for success when she sold her first short story to the Saturday Evening Post in 1935 for the sum of $400. However, it would be 11 years before Johnson would sell another story. This time, the Saturday Evening Post paid her $2,100. But success in her writing career evaded her again with the outbreak of World War II when she went to work for the Air Warden Service. When the war ended, Johnson returned to putting words on paper. Through hard work, she eventually found her true writing voice, turning traditional Western male tropes on their heads, as well as exploring Western stories from the female viewpoint and with a deep understanding of the history, lore, and perspective of Native Americans. As she did this, she began to sell stories regularly to prestigious magazines such as Collier's, Argosy, and the venerable Saturday Evening Post. Johnson was a single, self-supporting career woman in an age of homemakers and mothers. She never appeared to find the love for herself that so often appeared in her stories, but she never gave any indication she wanted or needed it. Her writings reflect this spirit of Western independence, Despite insecurities about what she called her creative vision, her work was of utmost importance to her. As a rare woman Western writer, she pursued the heart of her stories with a single-mindedness of purpose as she sought to portray the truth of the West as she saw it. Speaking of the real Westerners who inspired her characters, Johnson explained, I think the people who headed West were a different kind of people. Somebody said in a long poem that the cowards never started and the weaklings fell by the way. That doesn't mean that everyone who went west was noble, brave, courageous, and admirable, because some of them were utter skunks, but they were strong, and I like strong people. Women in Johnson's stories tend to be strong and loyal. Scholar Sue Hart notes that love and sacrifice are common themes in Johnson's work. I believe in love, Johnson said, 
and her finest characters reflect that belief. Johnson also attempted to incorporate the perspectives of Indian women. Her novel Buffalo Woman focuses on the story of Whirlwind, an Ogala Sioux woman living in the aftermath of the Battle of Little Bighorn. Johnson considered Buffalo Woman to be one of her best books, and the National Cowboy Hall of Fame honored the work with its prestigious Western Heritage Award. Pound for pound, Dorothy Johnson was one hell of a writer. The beauty of her stories is they are not stereotypical Westerns, or at least they didn't start out that way. In order to sell her stories, there were times when Johnson had to change her original manuscripts to meet editorial demands for a more male-driven narrative and more physical action rather than slow-burned psychological revelations. But despite these changes, the original Dorothy Johnson insights into frontier women, both settlers and Native American, and into the mindset and values of the Native American tribes still shine through. At her best, Johnson's writing reached beyond pulp-inspired shoot-em-ups to create poignant and compelling tales of average people coping with life on the frontier with a stark reality that jumps off the pages. Her characters are just trying to get through the day with a spark of hope for an incrementally better tomorrow. Her stories are gems of quiet heroism and patient sympathy told with imagination and empathy. And it is her ability to convey empathy that is key to making her stories and her characters live in the reader's imaginations long after they've turned the pages. Jack Schaefer, the acclaimed author of Shane and Monty Walsh, wrote in his foreword to the Hanging Tree collection of Johnson's stories, The integrity of her writing never wavers. No one has written with more understanding of the mountain men who first penetrated the Indian wilderness or of the white settlers who met hardship in hostile Indian territory and no one has written with keener perception of the Indians themselves. Here is no glamorizing, no romantic gilding of the settlers or of Indians. Here is something finer and more gripping, the honest portrayal of good and bad, of strength and frailty, of the admirable and contemptible, in both white settlements and Indian villages. As her stories gathered literary praise, Hollywood took notice. Eventually, three of her short stories went on to become acclaimed films. A Man Called Horse with Richard Harris in 1950, which was directed by Elliot Silverstein, who would later helm Cat Ballou. The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, directed by John Ford and starring heavyweights John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, and Lee Marvin in 1953. And The Hanging Tree, directed by Delmar Daves in 1957, which would become one of star Gary Cooper's best films. It's clear from the prominent directors and stars who made these films, Johnson's work was taken seriously. The determined, outspoken Johnson, who was once described as a witty, gritty, little bobcat of a woman, fit in and got along surprisingly well with all of those high-profile personalities, who would often write to her and, on occasion, visit her in Montana. She was proud of the fact they not only treated her as a friend, but also as one of the boys. Johnson was meticulous in her research into Native American culture, particularly that of the Blackfeet tribe, who would eventually honor her by inducting her into the tribe in 1959. Johnson felt the Blackfeet interacted with her as they did, because she knew and respected so much about their culture. Johnson began thinking about how somebody who had no knowledge at all about Native Americans, and was in fact contemptuous of them, would be treated differently. This imagining resulted in what can only be described as the harrowing tale Indian Country, the title of which would later be changed to A Man Called Horse for the movie. Johnson recalled she conceived the story for the man who shot Liberty Valance while questioning the Western myth of manly bravado. I asked myself, what if one of these big, bold gunmen 
who are having the traditional walk down, is not fearless. And what if he can't even shoot? Then what have you got? The Hanging Tree is a story of Joe Frail, an ill-fated frontier doctor, which works as a pure Western, as a moving love story, and as a psychological character study. Originally, the story was an examination of what a young woman experiences after seeing her father killed during a stage robbery, which causes her to become crippled by agoraphobia, basically the fear of open spaces, while trapped in the biggest open space of all. After ten years of rewrites, the story focus changed in order to fit the demands of the short story market. In the published version of the story, the woman with agoraphobia, while still important to the tale, has been relegated to a secondary role. Set in the early 1860s in a rough-and-tumble mountain mining camp named Skull Creek, the story opens when Dr. Joseph Frail rides into town, clearly a haunted man, with a mysterious past involving a fire and a dead wife. When a stagecoach is robbed and several passengers are killed, including the father of a woman named Elizabeth, who manages to escape only to end up wandering lost in the wilderness for several days. When a search party finds Elizabeth, she has been temporarily blinded by exposure to the sun. Doc Frail takes her in as a patient and gradually restores her to health. But Elizabeth has come to the goldfields to make her fortune, and once back on her feet, she is determined to pursue her dream. However, a lot of other people are hoping to make their fortunes in Skull Creek as well, and there's only so much gold to go around. Inevitably, there's going to be trouble, and Doc is going to be forced to confront his demons or be destroyed. While those of Johnson's stories that have been made into movies are her best known, my favorite of her stories is Lost Sister, because Johnson's reputation for authenticity and artistic integrity are unchanged by editorial demands and shine through. Lost Sister tells the story of an elderly woman who was kidnapped as a child by Indians. Forty years later, she is forcibly returned to her original family, who naively neglect her native upbringing and expect her to act as the Caucasian ideal. On the surface, the tale is riveting in its own right, but underlying the story is a brilliant examination of human assimilation and the tragic consequences of ignorance and prejudice. Above all, Johnson was a consummate Westerner, and this helped her excel in a literary genre that tended to be associated with men. Johnson defended women's ability to write Westerns. After all, men who write about the frontier West weren't there either. We all get our historical background material from the same printed sources. An inclination to write about the frontier is not a sex-linked characteristic like hair on the chest. Considering herself a professional writer, Johnson's attitude toward her work reflected this mindset. I write for money, she told a group of historians in 1967. I want to be read by lots of people who want to be entertained. And entertained she did, resulting in numerous allocates. In 1957, the Western Writers of America honored her with the prestigious Spur Award for her short story, Lost Sister. In 1976, the same organization presented her with the Levi Strauss Golden Saddleman Award for bringing dignity and honor to the history and legends of the West. The John Ford-directed film adaptation of Johnson's short story, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, was honored with a listing on the National Film Registry for its cultural significance to American cinema. 27 years after her death in 2013, Johnson was inducted into the Montana Cowboy Hall of Fame and was recognized with the Legacy Award from the Western Heritage Center for her notable contributions to the history and culture of Montana. In 2005, a 30-minute documentary of her life entitled Gravel in Her Gut and Spit in Her Eye 
was written and produced by Sue Hart of Montana State University Billings, with actress Margot Kidder lending her voice to Johnson's words. It is available for viewing on YouTube. Johnson was married briefly to a soldier named Peterkin, a cad who abandoned her after running up exorbitant gambling debts, for which she found herself responsible. Swearing she would never marry again, Johnson, who took pride in being self-sufficient, set about earning the money needed to clear the debts. When she was finally able to do so, Johnson famously stated she wanted her epitaph to read, Paid in full. When she died on November 11, 1984, at age 78, having suffered from several years with Parkinson's disease, that wish was fulfilled when the headstone in the Whitefish Cemetery where she was put to rest was emblazoned with her name and one other word, paid. God and I know what it means, she had said, and nobody else needs to know. Thanks for listening to this bonus speed listen installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast. Remember to check out our website at sixgunjustice.com for regularly updated reviews, articles, and interviews from the best of the Western wordslinger. Prior Six Gun Justice podcast episodes, Six Gun Justice speed listen installments, and Six Gun Justice conversations are available on all major podcast streaming platforms. Till next time, be kind to yourself, be kind to others, and keep your horse pointed in the direction of home. Adios. I'm out of here. Let's ride.